Welcome to another VIP episode of Hero Paranormal Podcast, broadcasting from the base at La Madre Mountain, just south of Area 51. My name is Ryan, the original outlaw of the airwaves, bringing you a humdinger of an epic episode tonight. Firstly, I'd like to say what an honor it was to finally talk to my guest, and uh, secondly, that he was, well, he wins the award so far for the most accommodating guest uh, that's been on ever. So you'll see um, as soon as we get to talk to him, so helpful, everything went so well. Thank him in advance for that. Thank you, Terry. He's grateful to have survived Devil's Den, and he's not on a mission to change people's minds about UFOs or the existence of alien life, but it's a story that has to be heard. He's going to explain why that is and go into the detail about the incident at Devil's Den, one of the freakiest and well, in my opinion, you just have to get the book. But we're, we're going to discuss the ins and outs of the incident at Devil's Den. Definitely look on Amazon, pick the book up, because it... It was 1977, and he is going to paint us a picture of what was happening over that particular state park during that time. Or hopefully, that this is stuff that... You may just have to get the book. There's so much that he can't... I mean, he could talk for days and not cover what the book has. So please go to Amazon, check out the book, Incident at Devil's Den. And uh, if you haven't gone and checked out Hero Paranormal, please go to heroparanormal.com. Feel free to subscribe on many platforms. We're on Spotify now, Patreon. I can't keep track of them all, to be honest with you. And, uh, of course, the uh, YouTube, the regular mainstay stuff, and social media as well. So, um, oh, and Anchor. That's, I mean, I really, uh, Anchor is, is a great platform. I really recommend Anchor to absolutely anyone thinking about podcasting. It is, if I would have known about Anchor when I started, my life would have been so much easier. Podbean is also another great, great tool that can be used. So check those out and uh, check out HeroParanormal.com. We have the President of the United States with COVID-19 and the First Lady. A lot going on. Uh, and I think we're going to have someone that, well, our audience, our, our, our hardcore patron listeners are very familiar with. I'm not going to spill the name yet, but... We're going to have a guest that is going to dissect the political arena and maybe uh, give us something to look forward to because it's 2020 is just really handing it to us so far. A lot of the stuff that's in the book, The Incident at the Devil's Den, sounds eerily familiar to incidents in the Uinta Basin of Utah and other areas worldwide that people just kind of seem to skim over and not really give attention to. So pay attention to what Terry is going to go into detail about. He is beyond a doubt, uh, gosh, such a good author in how he paints the picture of what happened back in 1977. I can't stress enough um, what a good author he is, what quality writing it is, and it really puts you in the moment. Before we speak with Terry, I want to go into a little bit about the area, which Native American tribes have, well, they've measured the area as far as being a little bit strange uh, there's a reason it's got its name, Devil's Den. 
But more than that, Terry sent me a ton of photographs, and he's really gone back and looked into the written record, uh, significant battles fought, and, you know, it's not just documenting his experience. His book really goes into detail about all aspects about this unexpectedly amazing amazing experience it's that bad dream you wish you never had and uh, and Terry does such a good job of explaining it I, I just can't wait to have him on if you didn't check out our last patron episode oh my gosh it is epic I can't stress enough some of these patron episodes go into deep deep detail so thanks to the patrons you guys are getting some seriously awesome stuff i'll try to keep it coming as fast and as consistently as possible thanks for your patience when i'm on the road overlanding and jumping from one paranormal hotspot to another as i have been it's been very difficult to record be on the road be in the truck i mean it's tough and they're not small drives a lot of these places are you know the uinta basin of utah is very far from nevada uh from where I'm at, and it is uh, also very far from some of the other areas that I'm going to. And But I'll keep those coming. I try to update social media as possible, and um, yeah, I can't keep con- steady content stream nonstop like some people can because I'm not tied to my desk. I'm actually out doing stuff, and I've got a family too, so that's tough, and everybody's got to make a living, and this is not my primary source of income, so... That's difficult. It's more of a passion project, I guess. And that's that's a good thing. So um, I want to keep it that way. Let's keep it rocking. We're going to bring the heat tonight. Take a seat. Pour a cup of your good, good beverage, whatever that is. And get ready for Terry Lovelace to paint you a picture of 1977 and the incident at Devil's Den. Terry, welcome to the Hero Paranormal Podcast, my man. How are you? I'm good. Oh, I'm so honored to finally talk to you. I'll tell you, out of all the cases, I come across a lot of the cases that I come across, you know, they leave impressions on me. But of all the cases, and and first kudos on your book, the writing is phenomenal. It really puts you in the moment. And, you know, it it takes you there uh, for all of our audience. Um, and, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, it is. It, it is amazing. I wanted to ask you, so it's, it's, I don't know where to start. I have so many questions and that's, that's the problem here. This has the fingerprints of so many different things all over it. I mean, you could go in the 411, you know, like uh, missing 411 direction. Uh, you could go in a, a lot of different directions it's 1977. Put us yep. there in that state park with you, and kind of let's let's go into detail about the incident at, at Devil's Den. Sure, I'm happy to. Um, just a little bit of background. Uh, I, I was working with a guy. I know we have 45 minutes, and that's a, that's a little light, uh, so I'll cut to the chase. Um, a friend of mine named Toby, we worked together. We were both first responders. We were medics and EMTs in the Air Force, stationed at Whiteman Air Force Base about 80 miles or so southeast of, uh, of uh, Kansas City near Sedalia, Missouri. Uh, but in the middle of nowhere, it was just nothing. Uh, it base with nuclear-armed B-52s, and then there were Minutemen, two ICBM Missile silos scattered all over the all over the countryside, all over the farmland. <clears throat> so, I uh, I was an amateur photographer. I had a new camera I wanted to use. My friend Toby was a sky watcher. He wanted he wanted to see the night stars without any light pollution. And uh, so, so my my friend says one night to me, we worked the night shift, 11 p.m. to uh, 8 a.m. And he says, Hey man, I got an idea. Let's go camping. And I'm like, Toby, man, are you nuts? I mean, I, was, I grew up in St. Louis City. He grew up in Flint, Michigan. I'm like, you know, what do we know about camping? Love you it. Know? He's just like, hey, man, it ain't rocket science. Let's just, uh, let's just go. 
And I was against the idea initially. And then it, uh, within 48 hours, it grew on me and became almost obsessive. Uh, so we, we planned a long weekend uh, in June of 1977. I believe the day was Saturday, June 11th. And we packed my car, got a full tank of gas in my old 66 Chevy, and we headed south. And the, uh, there were a whole bunch of missteps. I, I won't take time to go into them, but I'll just give you a, a couple examples. I carefully packed a, um, um, my camera bag with my camera equipment and different varieties of uh, black and white uh, film because I could develop black and white film and make prints at my home. Um, and I carefully packed everything and, you know, it's just, I'm not that inept. I left the camera on the kitchen counter, um, which, I mean, Toby brought his camera, so it wasn't like we didn't have one. It's just, I didn't have mine. And that was kind of the purpose of the exercise. I wanted to photograph eagles. So on the way down, Toby says, you know, we're not going to stay in the campground. And I said, well, why would we not stay in the campground? You know, why would, why would we not want hot showers and running electricity? And he's like, no, think about it, man. If, 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 we're, if we're there in a campsite, we're going to have campers to the right of us, campers to the left of us. We're going to have our little tent. They're going to have their, you know, demon sea children running all over the place. And, um, you know, I, I, the light pollution is going to prevent me from getting a decent view of the night sky. And he says, what are you going to take pictures of? You know, and I said, yeah, I guess you're right. So we made a decision. There's a area that, that's um, kind of uh, segregated from the park. We thought it was a nature preserve uh, because there was a sign across the road that says, you know, very sternly worded sign across the road that says, keep out, do not enter, no hunting, hiking, fishing, shooting, whatever. And um, we pulled up to that chain uh, we had been on pavement, then degraded to gravel, and finally we're on a dirt road. And uh, I said, I guess we'll turn around. My buddy says, no, no, hang on. He hopped out of the car, and what the rangers had done is, I guess they were too lazy to use the lock and key. They had taken a padlock and locked the, uh, the chain around itself to form a loop, and then just draped it over a nail on the opposite post. So all Toby had to do was get up and lift up the chain, drop it, just out of the ground. And we're like... Cool, and uh, and we and we rolled in, and we. Uh, I mean, I knew we were trespassing, but I thought, you know, what's the worst they're going to do to us? Throw us out? I mean, it's not not the crime of the century. Mm-hmm. What we didn't know was the land that we were on uh, was and still is uh, federal land, um, and I can't find out who manages. The the best answer I get is the Bureau of Land Management, but that's kind of not really clear. Um, the, um, there's a high plateau. I think I sent you a photograph of it. Yes. There's a high plateau um, out in the middle of nowhere, remote area. Uh, you can see some, like, farm buildings are, uh, you know, like maybe where they keep uh, tractors and stuff. Um, but it's still, back in 77, it was much, very, very remote. And uh, we drove in, and, uh, you know, through some lucky navigating, found a way up this uh, plateau, and it was a steep plateau. And we went up the hill, and, man, we crested the hill, and there was this beautiful meadow uh, full of, like, late-blooming wildflowers and knee-high grass, and it was, it was just gorgeous. And it was high enough that we had a view of the treetops which I thought, you know, I used Toby's camera, but, uh, you know, maybe I'd get some nice photographs of eagles. So, uh, you know, we were on top of the world. We, uh, we thought this was great. And uh, we set up our camp, and we did, uh, even though we were novices, we did all the, the, the fun stuff you do when you camp, you know, made a bonfire and, and uh, cooked hot dogs. And uh, after we ate, we were kicked back on these. We had our tent set up in back of us. We were offset. We weren't in the middle of the meadow. We were near the tree line. And uh, tent was in back of us. And then we had our campfire that separated. We had two air mattresses, one each, one apiece. And we were separated by about eight feet, maybe, uh, with the fire in the middle. 
Uh, and it was pleasant. It was nighttime. It had cooled down some. There was a nice breeze. And um, there came a lull in our conversation. And it got quiet. And I, and it sounds cliche. I mean, I almost want to apologize for saying it, but it's true. Um, all, the, all the noises of the forest, the crickets, the tree frogs, all the stuff out there that, that chirps at night went silent. And not only that, but the breeze stopped. I thought that was odd that those two events happened in concert. The breeze stopped and the insects stopped. And, you know, I asked my friend, I said, Toby, is this normal, man? You know, like he's going to know, you know? Right. And uh, he says, yeah. He says, listen, you know, we've been laughing and cutting up. They'll be back. You just wait. They'll be back. And uh, I was unnerved. And honestly, had I been there by myself, I'd have left the place. But I didn't. I, I, I tried to put it out of my mind. Uh, and we're chatting again. And Toby has his head turned to the left, looking at something. And I'm about to ask him, hey, man, what are you looking at? When uh, he asked me, hey, Terry, were those lights there before? And I'm like, what lights? What are you talking about? I can't see them because his torso is in the way. Uh, so I kind of stand up and take a step back and then I can see them. They're right on the horizon, but they're, they're kind of off the horizon, above the horizon. They're too high up in the air to be like lights from a train or a parking lot or something. I mean, plus we were in the middle of nowhere. And um, these, three di these three points of light were in a tight little triangle, each point being about as bright as the, uh, night, as the North Star. So they were very bright. And they just looked unnatural there. And I asked Toby, I said, man, you're the amateur astronomer. You know, I mean, he can point out constellations and, and uh, you know, that, that was, that was going to be his occupation. He wanted to be a, an astronomer. And he says, I don't know. He says, that, that, that's artificial. And I said, well, you think that's in our atmosphere or do you think that's out in space somewhere? And he says, I don't know. I got no way to tell. If it's out in space, it's big. So as soon as he said that, um, these things moved. And what they did was they rotated about 320 degrees, almost a, full, almost a full circle, and it aligned itself with the base of the triangle parallel with the horizon, with the apex of the triangle then pointing up. And uh, we were pretty impressed with that. And, um, but then um, things felt weird. You know, uh, there was very little conversation between the two of us. And as we watched, this thing started to ascend. It started to go straight up into the air. And we didn't think it was coming in our direction. It just looked like it was going up. And it rose till it reached an altitude. I don't, you know, at the time, I, I couldn't tell you how high it was. I didn't know the size of the craft. Uh, you know, it's dark. I don't know. Um, but I'll say this, that, that night there were a trillion stars out. There really were. And there was ambient starlight. The sky was, was actually blue. It wasn't black. And um, as this thing rose, we could see that the area inside the triangle was jet black. And also did some odd maneuvers. It did this tumbling-like thing where it would turn, uh, you know, point over the base, point over the base, and kind of like in this tumbling motion. And I remember I had the thought that this thing's moving with purpose. It's not just out of control. I don't know where that thought came from, but that's, that was my, my thought. And as we're watching, it, on its descent, it starts to get bigger, and the points of light expand. I mean, they're always equidistant to one another. Uh, this thing is, you know, it's not three independent lights operating in concert. It's one solid object. I mean, when it passed over a field of stars, they would black out until they until they had moved past and they would blink back on. Mm -hmm. So um, I felt this weird uh, sense of calm wash over me. And again, I, I had no idea where that came from. Uh, but my, my buddy must have been saying the same thing. I think the only, the only words said between us during this whole thing that we were watching was, Toby said, it's really moving now. 
Uh, and that's the only thing I remember, and I don't think I answered them. So we're watching, and um, we, I was in a weird place. It was, um, I, uh, I felt almost disinterested. I mean, not apathetic, but I felt kind of removed from the situation, more like I was an observer than a participant. It was, it was weird. I don't know. Uh, but somehow, I believe that these things had control over us. Um, you know, Toby's got a camera inside a bag a foot away from him. You know, uh, I'm an amateur photographer at the time. I photograph everything. I should have been screaming at the top of my lungs, get your camera out, man, take a picture of this. And he didn't. The thought of taking a picture of this thing never crossed our minds. And, and that makes no sense. And that shows that something was something was influencing. Um, and this this sense of calm, the sensation would rush over me in waves. Um, and finally, this thing uh, we saw it move across the tree line, and it was at an altitude of just about three thousand feet. And it stopped directly over the uh, meadow and it wasn't directly over us because we had put our campsite offset by the tree line and this thing was huge and we could see well we could only see two sides we could see the two points points on two sides um but this thing was five stories tall i mean it was like it was like a super walmart it was just absolutely enormous and to this day i don't understand why this thing wasn't seen in five counties I mean, yeah, I mean, we're way out in the middle of the woods, and there was nothing back in the day there, but uh, it just seems odd that, you know, the campers at the campsite a couple miles away couldn't see this, or didn't see this, or if they did see it, they disregarded it. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. So, while we're, uh, while we're waiting, we're just laying back on this thing, and it's kind of like we're just kind of watching this thing, and... Uh, waiting to see what's going to happen. And from the center of this thing, there came a light. Um, and it was a white light. It was about, you know what a searchlight is like when it cuts through heavy fog? You can see a column of white light. Mm -hmm. That's what this was like, but there was no fog. And this, uh, this white light was about the diameter of a football. And it just, boom, like someone hit a switch, turned on, and landed right square in the middle of our campfire and stayed lit there for maybe 60 seconds, probably less. And as soon as it turned off, then from the same spot in the middle of the craft and underneath, there came a laser beam. And I had no, this was 1977, I had only seen lasers on television. So this was kind of, uh, mm. kind of, uh, should have been exciting. Uh, but again, I was just kind of in observer mode. And it would land in our, this purplish blue light, about the diameter of a pencil, would land in a spot for a second and then reappear in another spot and then reappear in another spot. So it gave the illusion that this, this blue, bluish purple light was dancing all over our campsite. And it, you know, it struck me in the chest a couple times. I didn't feel a thing. Um, and I had the thought, this thing's checking us out. I mean, it's scanning us. It's, it's checking us out. Um, and I don't know where that came from, but I think that's true. So that lasted just a bit, maybe three minutes. And then that turned off. And as soon as that turned off, um, this calm sensation that I had morphed into uh, flat-out sedation. All I wanted to do was go to bed. I just wanted to get in the tent and go to sleep. And my, my buddy stood up and he said, show's over. And that's all he said. He grabbed his air mattress and he walked over to the tent and kind of tossed it in. And I followed suit and I tossed it in. And uh, the last thing that I remember was that it was still silent, that uh, crickets and tree frogs never did come back. And I laid down. I on the pillow and I was out. I didn't undress, didn't take my boots off, nothing. I just kicked back on the same mattress and I was asleep the second my head hit that pillow. And, uh, you know, 
I don't know how long we were out. We can't tell. Both of our watches, we, uh, as EMTs, you know, a, a watch is kind of part of the, uh, of the equipment. It's, it's, it's a necessary object. And we both wore good wind-up mechanical watches, which is, was common in 1977. You know, there were no batteries, very few at least, if any. Um, both of our watches stopped. Mine stopped at 2.40 on the nose. Toby stopped at 2.42. Uh, both of those watches never ran again. Uh, I had an Elgin that was less than a year old. I sent it back to the manufacturer. They sent it back to me and said that the... I wish I'd saved that letter. I, they, said, they sent me a letter back and said, you voided the warranty by subjecting the watch to a strong uh, magnetic field. Wow. And I'm like, what? Well, I guess I know where that came from. But, yeah. Uh, and just as a side note, I couldn't wear a watch for a year. Neither could Toby. It would, I mean, if I, if I bought I bought another wristwatch, it ran for less than 30 days, and then it stopped. Um, so we had trouble, trouble with our watches for a year. Uh, I ended up buying a $3 uh, pocket watch, and that lasted three months. So we were, we were out. I mean, we were out cold. I don't know how long we were out. We, we estimate about five to six hours um, based on the time that we saw the sunrise. I woke up because there were lights flashing through the tent, and they were yellow and white. Um, and these lights were so bright. They would light up the inside of that tent. I mean, like a ballpark at night. You know, it's like a light bulb, like a flash bulb from the 60s going off. You know, the kind that would make you see a blue dot in front of your eyes every time you blink for an hour. I mean, it was just incredibly bright. And I'm kind of out of it. You know, I don't have my wits about me. And I'm like, where am I? Oh, yeah, we're camping. I'm there with Toby and we're camping. And I thought these lights, I reasoned that they must be the overhead flashing lights of like a park ranger's truck there to kick us out. Mm. Uh, that was the only logical explanation I could think of. Yep. And I sat up, as soon as I sat up, I realized I, I was in pain. I had joint pain. And uh, I looked down at my boots, and my boots were undone almost all the way down. And I thought, what the heck? Because uh, I knew they were, I knew they were fully laced when I when I went to sleep. And I took off a boot, and my sock was on sideways. Now, you know, one of the things they teach you in the military is to take care of your feet. I mean, if, if you can't walk, somebody's got to carry you, and that takes two people, you know, out of action. Mm -hmm. So you got to take care of your feet, and I, I do to this day. So I would never do that. So that that confused me. But I'm still not scared. I'm still thinking they're park rangers out there. So I put on my, take the time, I put my socks and boots back on, lace them up, turn my attention to the left, and here's Toby peering out of the tent, out of the flap, his flap, the flap on his side of the tent. And um, Toby was uh, African-American. He had dark skin, and there were two tracks down the right side of his face. And in contrast with that bright white light, um, that tear track kind of lit up so I could see he was crying or at least had been crying and that scared me and I'm like Toby what's out there man is it park rangers who's out there and he puts his finger up to his lips kind of in the universal you know be quiet thing and uh, he says be quiet I think they're still out there and you know, I could tell from the, I could tell from the look on his face. I'd worked with this man for three years, and I could tell from the look on his face he was terrified. So I opened the flap of my tent and I looked out, and I saw two things: that this craft that had been three thousand feet above us when we went to bed had descended, and is now just thirty feet over that meadow. Uh, very close. I'm, I'm so glad we were offset from it, not underneath it. Uh, but it was, it was incredibly intimidating because of its size. Uh, and the mere fact that it was just levitated off the ground was spooky. Uh, the second thing I noticed was um, 
the lights on the points of the triangle had dimmed somewhat, but they were still flashing intermittently. Uh, and they, they gave us enough light. Uh, between that and the ambient starlight, we could kind of see what was going on in the meadow. And we were a bit of a distance away, but I saw 12 to 15 of what I thought to be children. And I said, Toby, man, what, what are these kids doing out in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere? And he said, and I'll never forget this, uh, he said, Terry, man, those ain't no little kids. Look at them. They're not human beings. Don't you remember? They took us and they hurt us. And as soon as he said that, I snapped out of whatever kind of uh, sedation or influence I was under, and I was just absolutely in terror. Uh, and uh, also when he said that, as soon as he said that, I had mental images of being inside that thing. Um, I want to be clear, I don't never have had a clear linear memory of being inside the ship and everything that happened, but I had this, just these tiny vignettes of events um, inside the thing. Um, and those have been, those vignettes, those those have been the uh, subject of my nightmares for 40 plus years. Wow. And, uh, I only have, you know, two a year, maybe three. Um, you know, we have, we our children are adults now, they're 40 and 36. You know, and all they knew, we never told our kids about this. Um, all they knew is that dad would have screaming nightmares, you know, once or twice a year. And I'd have to get up and go and check the windows, check the alarms, you know. Um, and um, so we're watching these little guys walk around this meadow. And we can tell they're not, they're not like looking at the ground. They're not looking for something. They're just walking around like tourists. And they had a bizarre gait. Uh, they walked like their like their like their knees were hinged almost somewhat backward, because when they walked, their knee would move back, and it gave them a real peculiar gait. They walked funny. And I also, when I look close, could see that yeah, they weren't human beings. Whatever they were, they had large, oversized heads, um, you know, spindly, thin torsos, and long limbs. So while we're watching them, uh, this light, another light came on from underneath this thing. And it was about, it was about I, I'm going to say it's 30 feet in diameter, because it's, it's about, the beam of light is, a, is about as wide as this thing is tall off of metal. So 30 feet up in the air and a, and a column of white light, visible white light, descends from the center of the thing. And uh, as soon as that does, these little guys turn and start to walk toward the light. So we're, and we're terrified. We're absolutely scared out of our wits because we're not sure if, if we sneeze, are we going to draw their attention? You know, we're, we're, we're afraid of that. We're afraid of these guys. And they would walk into this light in twos and threes and just bash. I mean... Like that, like that 1960 Star Trek thing where they had a transponder, transporter or something. Yep. Or showed people standing up and then they would just dissolve in the pixelation. That's what this was like. And when the last two guys uh, stepped into that light and dissolved, that light off. I mean, like someone, again, like someone put the switch, it turned off. And then immediately the, um, there had been a droning noise. Um, that I forgot to mention that I noticed when I woke up. Matter of fact, I, I, I thought maybe this park ranger is running a generator in the back of this truck, which of course makes no sense. Mm -hmm. um, but by this time, we had been we'd become accustomed to that noise, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that noise stopped. And the uh, as I said, the lights on the point of the triangle change from multicolored and flashing to just all white. And there was a, um, if you go to my website, I have a hand drawing that I made of the thing. There's what I call a light panel. And it goes all the way up, all the way up the uh, apex, all the way up the points of the triangle. 
and there was a beam of bright light that would run up and down that uh, that light bar. And I thought, yeah, that's what makes it look like a twinkling star in the sky. Instead of just steady bright light, it makes it look like a star. It's a disguise. And um, we watched this thing take off, and it did not take off like a rocket ship. It lifted off like a hot air balloon, and it went straight up. And we watched it until it was a single point of light, and then, you know, three points of light. And yeah, it did twinkle in the sky. Um, and like I say, one point of light, and then it was gone. Further, the, the higher it got, the faster it moved. So it's gone, and Toby and I are sitting there, uh, and we're still scared out of our wits. Uh, and I know this sounds odd, but you know, I knew we had to get out of there. Um, and all I had over my head was a piece of canvas. But I felt that piece of canvas gave me cover. You know, I wasn't vulnerable. I wasn't out in the open. And to drive to the car, we're going to have to be in the open, you know, for the 20 yards or so to the car. And uh, Toby's like, man, we just got to do this. And uh, I grabbed my wallet. He grabbed his flashlight. And uh, we ran to the car and hopped in hit the locks, turned on the dome light, checked under the seats, make sure we were alone. And uh, I gotta tell you, to this day, uh, I will not walk across an open space. I'll walk a mile and a half around rather than cut across an open field because I, I still feel vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And uh, we drove as fast as we could north. We got back to the base. Um, Something that's important I should mention, too, is uh, this event changed us. Uh, we, we were different people. Uh, my wife would tell you, we were different people than we were when we went down there. We went down there as kids, I think, and we left there as, as, as adults. Uh, we were a lot more serious and a lot more, um, well, we were just adults. Um, but the weirdest thing was, my who this guy was, he's my best friend, my co-worker, you know, on our days off, we play cards together, we, you know, have a beer and barbecue, and uh, um, we just had fun together, we were just friends. And suddenly, I wanted nothing to do with the guy. Mm -hmm. And I could not reconcile that emotion, and I, and I can't to this day. But that's what I felt. I felt like I did not want anything to do with this guy. And I found out that that's not that uncommon. I've had, uh, since I put my, my book out, Devil's Den, uh, I put an email address in the back of the book and said, email if you've had an experience. And I've got over, as of two days ago, I cracked 1,400 emails from people. Uh, I get up every morning and return a couple emails from people. I, I return everybody's email. Um, but I've got a core of about 600, maybe 700 stories that had this incredible thread of commonality through them. Uh, you know, two people witness something and they drift apart. Uh, family members witness something and they don't talk about it, won't talk about it. Years later, somebody brings it up at a Thanksgiving dinner and that was it. Dinner was over. Everybody went home. Uh, so it's not that, it's not that unusual. Uh, to have that emotion. So we got back to the base. Our wives took us to the hospital. Uh, I had like 103 fever. I was extremely dehydrated, acutely dehydrated. Uh, and I also had flash burns to my eyes. Uh, flash burns are what like an off-roader would get if they didn't wear that hood. And it's, uh, it's a sunburn to the cornea of your eye. And I can tell you, it's painful. It, it feels like you have sand in your eyes. So on the way back, I'm trying to deal with that because as soon as the sun comes up, man, you know, pain in my eyes is just terrible. Uh, Toby, whatever they did to me, I think they gave him a double dose because he is just curled up in a ball in the big fence seat of my old Chevy. Um, and uh, he's just out of it. So... When I went to the hospital, they gave us separate rooms. They kept us apart. Toby got one exam room. I got the other. 
And remember, you know, I'm a member of the hospital squadron. These people are all my friends. I know them all. I work with them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, medical people take care of their own. So uh, I had the most thorough medical exam of my life. Um, but I had to keep my eyes closed because I was so photophobic from this, from this uh, uh, burning to my eyes. Uh, but I do remember, I do recall, the growl of a Geiger counter. Uh, and it, it growled, and I knew that it shouldn't be. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm on a base with enough plutonium to destroy Europe, so, you know, plutonium radiation is an issue there. And uh, they never mentioned that. They diagnosed me as being acutely dehydrated. Uh, mm. And I had... Uh, sunburn. I had the worst sunburn I'd ever had in my life. I was burned under my arms, the soles of my feet, my scalp. Um, I mean, everywhere was burned. And the doctors could not understand that. And uh, one of them joked, what, did you take off your clothes and, and get on a rotisserie and, uh, you know, sit in the sun for a couple hours? And uh, nobody else thought it was funny. I sure didn't. Um, but that's that's how badly we were burned. Never peeled, never blistered, though. It was just, but it was painful. Mm -hmm. So I get into my private room uh, to keep the lights off for my comfort, and uh, they treat me well, of course. And uh, one night, I was there three days and two nights. On the second night there, my night nurse came in with a, a sedative for me to help me sleep. It's like 9 p.m. And two guys in blue business suits followed her into the exam room. And the one, there was one guy about 50-ish with a flat top haircut like they had in the 60s. I mean, it was out of, out of style back in 77. Mm -hmm. And then the other guy was about 30 years old, much taller. Um, but the older guy was obviously in charge. And they carried themselves like cops. I mean, they just, they, they were police. And... Uh, they, you know, they made no effort to hide their shoulder holsters with the, you know, their revolvers visible. And they, uh, they yeah, they told the nurse, the old guy told the nurse, that that's going to sedate him, it's going to have to wait. We have to ask some questions to Sergeant Lovelace. And then, for no reason, he said, in a really mean voice, and shut the door on your way out. And I thought, my God, that's uncalled for. Mm -hmm. You know, he has a little, little civility here. I was scared out of my wits. I mean, I'd always been a straight kid. I'd never had any interaction with the police in my life. I didn't, I didn't know anything. I didn't have the benefit of an education, life experience. I certainly didn't have a law degree. And uh, he pulled up a chair next to me. And his, his uh, second pulled up a chair on the other side of me. And they started, first they read me my rights under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And... Um, then they put on their, the uh, guy in charge put on his little, you know, drugstore eyeglasses to read. And, uh, like I said, read me no lights. And he starts off with, uh, the uh, park rangers found your little campsite down there and you left everything there. And we did. We left our tent. We left our cooler. We left Toby's backpack. And that's how they found us. Toby's backpack had his name and address on it. And both Toby and I lived on the base. And family housing, MCO housing, on base. So, my guess is the park rangers found that uh, chain. We didn't put that chain back up when we left. Uh, found that chain down and probably drove in to investigate and found our campsite. So this guy's this guy's grilled me, and he's he's uh, using techniques where I mean I, I've seen in law enforcement from my days. As being a district attorney, I, I know a little bit about this police interrogation methods, and uh, and uh, you know, in retrospect, it, mo it was mostly drama. And um, you know, I kept Toby and I had made the pact that we weren't going to tell anybody we saw a flying saucer. This was 1977. Uh, I think they'd have put us on a psych ward, and we'd have been discharged from the military. Uh, and I, did, I, didn't, I didn't want a medical discharge. I wanted to finish my enlistment and finish school. So um, all we told the doctors was we were feeling funny, we went to bed, and we woke up sick as dogs, and here we are. 
So I told, told the same story to this OSI agent. And, um, you know, he insinuates, well, I think you're planning on going back. You guys, are you guys growing marijuana down there? Is that what this is all about? Is there a little marijuana plot down there? And, of course, that scared me to death because in 1977, that would have been a very big deal. And uh, he, he kind of wraps things up. And um, he laid out some forms for me to sign. And I said, sir, what are these? Understand, I can't read. I've got, you know, burns to my eyes that they treat with salve in my eyes. So everything gets blurry. And he flips the overhead lights on that they had kept off for my comfort. And I'm like, you know, that's painful. I said, sir, what are these forms? And he said, son, these are waiver and consent forms. Uh, he had this weird, he had this weird Alabama or Mississippi accent. I'm not sure which. Kind of like he talked, kind of like the accent that Calvin Parker has, if you've ever heard Calvin speak. Mm -hmm. And um, he handed me a pen, and I signed everything. I never, never, never read a word of it. Uh, and I wasn't about to ask him to read it to me. Right. So he scooped up those forms, put them in his briefcase. Uh, as I said, the captain left, and it was just me and the major, the guy in charge, alone in the room. And he packed his little briefcase thing, and my, the head of my bed was right near the door. And he put his hand against the door so no one could come in without him knowing it. And he got down next to my ear, and he whispered, Son, I know, and you know, you two knuckleheads stumbled onto something out there, didn't you? And I didn't know how to answer. Um, I certainly wasn't going to tell him the truth, you know. Uh, I mean, the truth is important. That's why I thought, you know, we were sick in the morning, we woke up sick, we came home. That is the truth. Yeah. Um, and he said, I didn't answer him, and he said, oh, I think you know what I mean. I know you know what I mean. And he says, all I want is your camera and your film, oh. and this can all go away. Whoa. And without thinking, I blurted out, sir, I never took a single picture of it. And he just smiled. And that was confirmation. I don't know how they knew. I really don't. I, I wish I knew how they knew, but they knew. Uh, they absolutely knew. Mm -hmm. And um, like I said, I had this reputation for being a, an amateur photographer, and uh, I think they were very concerned that I had a 36 black and white exposure roll of film uh, with images of this thing. God, I wish I had, you know. <laughs> um, but again, weird enough, the, the thought of taking a picture of the thing never crossed my mind. And there was a second OSI investigation. Um, I should mention Toby. Uh, let me back up real quick. I'll make this yeah, quick. Yeah. Um, when, when we were in the exam room, the, um, the doctor was just finishing up my exam, and four guys came into the room. It was the base commander in uniform, of course, the hospital commander, who I knew very well uh, in uniform, and then there were two guys in civilian clothes I didn't recognize. And the only one that spoke was my boss, the hospital commander. And um, it wasn't the usual friendly conversational tone. Yeah, there's difference between an enlisted man and an officer, you know. But we usually have a conversation. Uh, he walks in and he says, Sergeant Lovelace, you're to have no contact with Sergeant Tobias in any way, shape, or form. That means... No talking, no telephone calls, no messages to any third parties. You're not to give him anything. He's not to give you anything. Uh, and on and on and on. Uh, he, he would far as say, you know, if you're at the base exchange and you're shopping and you turn around the, uh, into the uh, frozen food aisle and he's there, you'll immediately turn around and walk in the opposite direction. So he goes through this whole litany thing and then reemphasizes, this is an order, Sergeant, if you disobey it, there will be consequences. Do you understand? Uh, well, I didn't understand the reasons, but I understood what consequences meant. So I said, yes, sir. Uh, and they left. Uh, and that's, that's why they didn't put us in the same room. And they, they segregated us. Uh, they put me in a supply squadron 
and they cut Toby orders for for uh, Japan at like light speed. So he he was gone in a couple of weeks, and I wanted to see the guy one last time. And I can't explain the emotion or the reason why, because it doesn't make sense. But I felt like I owed him a goodbye. Mm-hmm. So, despite the order, um, my wife stopped by his house. We were actually coming home from the grocery store. And he lived just, what, three blocks from us. And uh, there was a moving truck parked in the, uh, in the driveway. And my wife says, don't do this, Terry. You know, I, these OSI people scare me. And I said, look, I'll be real quick. I'm going to shake his hand, wish him well. He's been my friend. I own that at least. And I hopped out of the car. Uh, she was driving. It's her little Carmen gear. And I ran up to the door. Same same doorway I've walked through a hundred times before. Um, but this time when I opened the door, I announced myself. And I said, oh, I got home. It's me. And uh, Toby's wife walked by, and she had something in her hand. I think it was something. It was either a lamp or a box or something. But they were moving, and she just glared at me and gave me the the, the, the meanest look and said, "You're not supposed to be here." And I said, "No, I know that. I'm not here for confrontation. I just want to wish you guys well, and uh, I know you're I know you're moving." And I think, in, in retrospect, she probably blamed me. Uh, for her husband's um, illness and for uh, them having to pull up roots and move so abruptly. And Toby heard this exchange and came out of the bedroom and around the hallway. And uh, and he was a wreck. He was a mess. Uh, I mean, I knew this guy always to be uh, meticulous about his appearance. You know, he was... Um, Always had a haircut, always had shoes shined, always had freshly crisp, uh, creased uniform. Unlike me, you know, I'm a slob, but he was, uh, he was not. When he came out of the bedroom, he's wearing a dirty t-shirt, his hair is like sideways, he hasn't shaved, he's got on blue jeans and he's barefoot, uh, and he just looks terrible. And he walks up to me and it was awkward, it was awkward for both of us. You know, and I, I felt it would be appropriate to hug the guy and say, you know, I, I wish you the best for miss you. Um, but he didn't do that. And we did this uh, inelegant kind of handshake thing where, you know, we finally, finally made connections and shook hands. And I said, I just want to wish you well. And I could smell, he had liquor on his breath. And he wasn't a drinker, you know. He was maybe a can of beer, beer and a half at a barbecue, and that was it. Uh, but he had liquor on his breath and may have been under the influence of liquor. And Toby was a little short. I'm six foot. Toby was a couple inches shorter than I am. And he just, he looked up at me, and his eyes were bloodshot. And he asked me, he said, it happened, didn't it, Terry? And I said, yes, my brother, it really happened, and you're not losing your mind. And then he said, but why us? And I said, man, I don't have a clue. And I broke eye contact, I looked at my boots, and uh, there was an awkward moment of silence, and I I didn't say goodbye, I just turned and ran out of the house. Uh, It was a weird exchange. Uh, Got back in the car. I really thought I would feel better seeing him again, wishing him well, saying goodbye, but that, that it didn't turn out that way. Uh, it was more disturbing. Um, so, Toby left and uh, I stayed. I had one final interrogation with the OSI at their headquarters and a, uh, uh, an interrogation room under the influence of sodium amethol, which is a short-acting hypnotic drug. Uh, one of the one of the forms that I had signed while I was in the hospital was consent to hypnotic regression, and that's part of the process. Mm. So I was hypnotized and uh, asked to relay everything that happened to us. 
Um, after I started off with, after the guy thought that I was under them, I, I was trying to resist the hypnosis. I thought if I, I could resist the hypnosis uh, mentally, I think it's the opposite of what he's saying. You know, you go down the stairs, feeling relaxed. I think, well, I'm going up the stairs. You know, I'm doing multiplication tables in my head. I'm trying to do everything I can not to surrender my full brain and my full attention to this guy. But when he gave me that drug, it was like, bam! It was I was in twilight zone. And he said, um, Terry, you and Toby went camping, is that right? And I said, yes, that's right. And he says, my, that must have been exciting. I just said, yes. And he said, and you saw some funny lights in the sky, didn't you? And I said, yes. And he says, but they weren't funny lights, were they, Terry? I said, no, they weren't. He says, who were they? And I said, they were the space people. And I could not believe, I could not believe those words came out of my mouth. I have no idea where that came from. Uh, and uh, this uh, hypnotic regression interrogation thing lasted about three hours. Um, the point of the exercise was they wanted to find out, was I truthful with these agents and did I have any film? They were concerned I had a photograph of this thing. That was the whole purpose of this exercise. And, uh, you know, since I didn't, I told them the truth. No, I don't. No, I don't. And uh, they believed me. And uh, brought me out of hypnosis and cut me loose. And that was kind of the end of, of that adventure. And I got out of the Air Force uh, in 79. And uh, that, that was the end of my enlistment. So there's a lot more that happened afterward. Uh, I'll just briefly mention because it makes sense. I had never had an intention of telling this story to anyone. We didn't tell our kids. It was a secret my wife and I shared. As a matter of fact, every time, a few, a few occasions we talked about it over 47 years of our marriage. Every time, if we, if we brought it up, I felt guilty for some reason. And I think they wired my brain for that. I, I really believe that. So uh, in 2012, I uh, retired uh, from the state of Vermont in 2012 and moved from Vermont to Dallas, where our adult children and grandchildren are. And um, about eight months later in October of that year, I woke up and I couldn't support weight on my right leg. And I told my wife, you guys take, take me to the hospital. The only medical care I had was, uh, I had free medical care from the VA. So, take me to the VA. Went to the VA emergency room and they uh, wheeled me into x-ray. And x-ray technician took uh, a lot of shots. Took a lot of shots of my, of my uh, leg and asked me, have you been in an accident or had a shrapnel wound or something that would account for a piece of metal in your leg? And I said, no, look, I never left the States. Um, and I've never, I've never done anything to that knee other than maybe have a skinned knee as a kid. And uh, she looked confused. And she said, well, the radiologist is going to come down and take a look at your films. I said, okay. So radiologist comes down, looking very annoyed. And he walks in, and he pops up the films on a light box. And he says, well... I can, I can tell this, and he walks over to me, and he pokes me in my knee, and says, you're going to have a scar right about here. And I said, doctor, I don't have a scar there. And he says, you got to have a scar there, because and he pointed out the image. You know, it's like a little transistor or something, about the size of a fingernail with two wires attached to it. Mm -hmm. He said, for, a, for this object to be as deeply embedded in your tissue through your fascia, uh, it can't, it can't violate the integrity of your skin without leaving a scar. It's got to be scarred there. Mm -hmm. And uh, we argued about it, and, you know, he finally I took my pants off again, and uh, he examined my leg for 10 minutes and looked uh, disturbed. And he said, no, I don't find a scar. And I said, well, doctor, let me ask you, how often is it that you find a foreign object in the body and there not be a corresponding scar? And he said, never. He said, I've been a radiologist 23 years. I've never seen that before. And he says, there's something else I want to show you. 
the guy was almost empathetic. He popped up the second view, which was a side view of my leg. And in my calf muscle, there's a collection of uh, like tic-tac-like objects that form like a flower or make a florette pattern. Mm -hmm. And uh, a little dot in the middle. Uh, and he says, you've got these bones in your leg. And before I saw the x-ray, I said, well, hell, what's wrong with that, Doc? I'm supposed to have bones in my leg. He says, no, no, no. And he showed me, and it's, it was weird. I mean, uh, as an EMT, I knew a little bit, paramedic, I knew a little bit about human anatomy, physiology, and I knew uh, that, there, that there were no bones inside the cat muscle. And um, it was shocking. And I'll tell you, it was like a slap in the face to see it because it brought back these memories from 1977. And I knew these things had put their hands on me. And that was just creepy. That was just awful. And he said, you know, muscle doesn't, autom muscle doesn't, or pardon me, bone tissue doesn't just sprout in the middle of a muscle. That doesn't happen. Much less do they arrange themselves in a symmetrical pattern like this. That just doesn't happen. And uh, he said, I don't know. But they did find, I had a, what's called a Baker's cyst. Just, it's common. It's a benign cyst under my kneecap. Uh, and and these, these things in my body were just found by happenstance because I developed a cyst. And uh, the cyst has enough, the two things in the, uh, my leg, the implant thing, had nothing at all to do with my, uh, with my leg pain mm -hmm. and ability to support weight on it. Wow. wow. So that, uh, that changed things. That brought back, uh, again, nightmares became a lot more frequent. And uh, 2016, uh, I was determined I'm going to write a book and I'm going to tell the world about this. And, uh, and I did. And it, and it feels good to, to do that. And I, I enjoy telling the story. It's a little bit uncomfortable to tell, but I enjoy telling the story. Uh, I think the message is important. You know, and the message is, is that we're not, we're not top dog. We're not at the very top. Um, you know, we are, uh, they are so far above us uh, in all regard that, um, and if people don't believe this stuff is real, that's fine. Everybody is entitled to their, to their opinion, and I'm not here to change anyone's mind. But um, I would just say, Listen to people. Look at the evidence. Yeah, sure, there's a lot of stuff out there done with Photoshop by people trying to deceive you. But there are a lot of legitimate uh, people out there, like myself, that, you know, have a reputation. Uh, you know, I, I lost all my, my respect, the respect of all my peers in the legal community when I did this. Uh, but I don't care. I made more, more friends in the uh, UFO community. Uh, I find out who found out who my real friends were. Mm -hmm. So that's that's pretty much where it stands. Such an amazing story, and I love that you're not out to change people's minds about UFO or the existence of alien life, and and you're grateful to have survived the Devil's Den. I think it's something everybody should read, and I'm honored that you've come on the show. Where can our listeners go to support you and keep up with everything you have going on? Yeah, I have a website. It's Terry Lovelace, you know, one word, Terry Lovelace, dot com. Uh, I don't keep the website up to date, unfortunately. I'm lazy, but, but there's some amazing photographs on there for people to look at. Uh, and my book is available in Kindle, in paperback with photographs in the back. Uh, and I made an audio book that I recorded in my own voice. So, uh, and they're all on Amazon and only on Amazon. Uh, so, uh, I also have a second book, um, that needs to be out there and, uh, I hope to have that out soon, soon being a couple of months. Um, you know, if you're interested in the topic, read the book and decide for yourself. And I appreciate the opportunity to be here. And I thank you. Thank you, Terry. I can't wait to talk to you again. We have to. It's it's just you, you do such a great job 
of explaining what happened, and we're so thankful for that. All the best to you. I hope we talk soon, and take care, my friend. You too, man. Take care. Bye-bye. I'm telling you guys, the attention to detail and the, <laughs> the experiences that Terry had, wow. Just a servant of the people, as he's always been throughout his career, and he, this, this, has, this has bled over into him explaining this experience and what what a quality individual what quality writing and what a blessing to have him on the podcast can't can't thank him enough got some new merchandise coming some baby products uh we're going to affiliate with because that's what i'm about babies right now babies and the paranormal so i want bulletproof stuff that i can uh i can do what i need to do with the baby and still you know rely on quality that i expect and uh, we will bleed that over to our listeners and our fan base because this stuff's good stuff. And I back it. It's good. Anyway, um, until next time, keep your eyes to the skies, feet on the ground, but don't forget to take a look around. My time machine, third eye feeling like an Eve. I seen blast out, blast out, blast out, blast out. Look, visine for the third eye. It's levels and you can catch me with a bird's fly. Blast off in the time machine, blowing on that light green straight line of beans. Beasy, take it easy what they tell me. Boy, I'm so deep, not even Lucifer can help me, and I'm going so hard, not even Lucifer can stop me. Talking bitches, Somali, Maseratis, and paparazzi. Kamikaze as soon as a nigga trip Two step I do mines like this DeLorean Historian Her storyin' We partyin' back to the future like Michael J Fox I throw that cock she feel some type of way She hot But it ain't gon' change a thing with this pimpin' I ain't with that simpin' Can't you see we on a mission baby? I'm blast off in my time machine Third eye feelin' like an Evazine Blast off Blast off